Well, here we are on Palm Sunday. Now, if you have been uh, around for the last few weeks, uh, you know that we've been having Palm Sunday all month, right? Yeah, we like practically waved branches and Jesus walked in Jerusalem like way back at the start of March. So I'm, I'm sorry if you missed that. But we are, we are now here on Palm Sunday, and in, in many ways we're, we're just continuing the story of Palm Sunday that we've been looking at as we've been traveling through the Gospel of Mark. We're walking through Mark, and um, I think we'll finish it sometime uh, in 2015. You might remember, Jesus decided to openly declare himself as the king by taking a donkey and riding in to Jerusalem. It was a bold move. It was a political move. It was a, it was a move that was intended to reveal who he was, and it really made some people upset. And we talked about how this king, is something we've been seeing all the way through the Gospel of Mark, this king has been showing people, this is what I'm like. This is what my kingdom is like. This is what happens to people who come under my leadership. People are healed. People are restored. Um, people find that they, though they've been living as outcasts, they're now included in the kingdom of God. Crazy stuff happens. And, and Jesus begins you know, pushing back the darkness and the evil in people's lives and, and showing people that this kingdom he's proclaiming is a good kingdom that is bringing wholeness and healing and life to each and every person. He's the king, and what he's concerned about, we see it all over, what he's concerned about is people. Men and women, boys and girls, experiencing the goodness of God in their lives in transformative ways. That's what he's all about. So he rides into Jerusalem, and he's looking for fruit, right? Fruit is this metaphor. He's looking for whether or not his people, the people of God, are are being the kind of people, I'm moving this out of my way because I know I'm going to run into it, because I'm quite excited about this morning. Uh, uh, He's looking to see, are his people producing the kind of fruit, that's the metaphor, are they being the kind of people, are they doing the kind of things, are they, is there evidence of this kingdom life that he's been describing in his people? Because that's what he's set them up for. He comes in to the spiritual heart of, of the people at the temple, and he finds out to his dismay that not only were the people not producing the kind of fruit that, that he wanted, that he desired, they were actually actively resisting God's desire. Remember what kind of fruit he was looking for? It was based on that famous quote when he said, my house should be a house of prayer for all nations, and you've made it a den of robbers. And we looked at that, I'm summarizing like multiple weeks here. We looked at that and saw the kind of fruit that, that Jesus was looking for was, was kind of two things. One, are my people making space for people who are far away from God to connect with God? Are they making space? And what he found out is not only were they not making space, they had like filled up the only available space for outsiders with all their animals and money changers and stuff. And so he was really ripped off about that, flipping tables, driving cows around, you know. And... Um, so, are my people making space for people far away from God to connect with God? We talked about the implications for us. And are my people living uh, love for others and goodness for others so that people in their everyday 24-7 lives, you know, people that interact with them at work or in business or out and about or kids or home or family, are they experiencing God's goodness in their lives in such a way that they say, you know what, 
through this person, through this interaction, through this relationship, I'm drawn to find out more about this God that you worship. So is it happening? And the reality is, it wasn't happening. And Jesus was, uh, well, he was super upset. Because, why? He's all about people. He's all about people coming to know the freedom and the life that God has for them and exploring and, and who, who, you know, who that is. And because God's people but particularly the religious leadership, because they were rejecting God's plan for people, because they were actively resisting, then Jesus came with a warning from God. Either embrace what I'm doing, embrace what God is doing through me, embrace this new kingdom life, or you are going to be basically irrelevant and eventually you're going to die. There's going to be judgment that will come. And so today, as we continue this drama, religious leaders, they really take it up a notch. They are super upset with Jesus. They're upset with what he said. They're upset with the implications of what it's going to mean for their lives. And so they bring the full force of their rejection against Jesus. And as we witness this interaction today, we're going to see that Jesus takes us once again to the heart of what really matters, which is people. And that's where he's going to take us. He's going to take us right, right to the heart. So we're going to walk through the story together. Uh, if you have a Bible, it's in Mark chapter 12. I've also printed it off in the bulletins. And then some of you have iPads and phones. And, you know, just try not to check Facebook too many times. Uh, <clears throat> so we're going to walk through this together. So let's just go through the story and see where it, where it lands us. Later, this is probably a story that happened just, uh, you know, maybe not the next day, but Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus in his own words. So, this is following the temple incident. Uh, They've seen what Jesus has done in the temple. They've seen what he said. And they're freaking out. And so they send, uh, they cook up basically a plan to eliminate Jesus. Now, who are these groups? We need to kind of remember uh, these groups, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians aren't your average uh, political party today. And so uh, let's just uh, catch up a little bit. The Pharisees were part of an ultra-religious sect within Judaism. They were very focused on ritual purity, obedience to God's laws, and had very clear distinctions between those who were truly faithful, in other words, did what they said, did what they did, and those who were not. They were kind of the most common detractors of Jesus. We see them show up all over the place to oppose him and, and reject him. As a, as a sect within Judaism, they didn't have any official power. Um, it wasn't like they had a title or particular, but they were, they were among the everyday Jewish people. Uh, they were admired and they were followed and they really were, were seen as people that really represented true or pure Judaism, at least, at least by, by a lot of folks. Um, the Pharisees weren't, uh, violent per se, but they were, they, they hated Rome and they kind of sympathized with, with, uh, those who were, you know, against, against Rome. Uh, they had it pretty good. They were respected in society. Everyone kind of looked up to them, except for Jesus, who seemed to be messing everything up for them. So they didn't like Jesus. This other group, the Herodians, were literally the opposite. As, as, as you know, the, the name of their party might suggest, these were Herods. He's the, the wicked tyrant king. We've seen him show up already. Um, they're his closest supporters. They, the Herodians, they made peace with Rome. They were, they were comfortable under their leadership and they were benefiting from the tyranny of Rome and the little puppet kings that, that were around. Um, now, their position didn't win them any favors with faithful Jews, but hey, you can't have everything, right? So they were, they were okay with it. They were doing just fine, except for Jesus, who seemed to be threatening to tear it all down around their heads. 
So get it. These Pharisees and their Herodians were very unlikely partners. They despised one another as political and religious enemies. On any other day of the week, they would have pointed at each other as the reason why the whole country was going to hell in a handbasket. They're the problem. That's what they would have said on any other day. But as the old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my what? My friend, right? And so for both groups, they were looking at Jesus as the primary public enemy, enemy number one. And so we already saw them plotting together earlier on in the story of Mark, and here they are again. So what's their plan? They want to trap Jesus in his own words. They basically want to get Jesus to say something that will allow them to incriminate and then eliminate Jesus. But first, before they want to get to the stuff, they want to apply a little bit of honey, right? They really want to bring a stinger. So here's the honey that they apply. Here it is. Listen to how they start. This is how they start talking to Jesus. Teacher. Remember, these are his enemies. They, we already know where they stand like a hundred times over. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. Drip. Drip. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Like, who gets off with this kind of stuff? I, I, I imagine them, could they even do this with a straight face? Was anyone fooled by this? I mean, these are Jesus' enemies. They've constantly, they've been hounding them over and over again, and yet they come up with this nonsense. What's ironic, of course, is that they're actually telling the truth about Jesus. He is a man of integrity. He is impartial. He is truthful. But they don't believe that. They think he's a deviant fraud. They're out to kill him. So why say it? I think they actually know that Jesus will, will see through it. But they're daring Jesus to really say what he thinks. They're saying, come on, Jesus. We're going to ask you a doozy. And don't you hide from us this time, like you did last time. Don't hide from us this time. I dare you. You're not afraid of anybody. I dare you to say the truth in answer to our next question. Well, here's the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Let me ask this. How is this a trap exactly? The real reason is a trap is because there seems to be no right answer. If Jesus says, no, it's not right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar, then the Pharisees are able to go to the people, or sorry, the Herodians, sorry, if Jesus says it's not right to pay, then the Herodians are able to go to the people and say, uh, to, to Herod and say, using Jesus' own words, say, you know, this guy, he's stirring up sedition. He's, he's treasonous. He's, he's telling people that they don't need to, to submit to Rome's authority. So let's get him. Guilty of, you know, encouraging revolution. If Jesus says, yes, it is right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar, then the Pharisees go to the people and the, the many, many Jewish people who are, who are struggling with Rome and hating Rome and against Rome and see God's kingdom as an answer to this tyrant Roman. And they'll do, they're able to go to the people and say, see, this Jesus, he's just another religious compromiser. He's supporting these idolatrous tyrants that's God, that God has promised to come and destroy. All this talk about this kingdom of God stuff is all trash. 
This is the real. He's on the side of evil. He's on the side of the oppressor. That's the trap. It's kind of a, a lose-lose scenario where he's not really able to get to the right end. Well, Jesus, he, he loves this kind of stuff. We've seen it already, right? He loves these hard questions. And I don't think we even pause sometimes to consider how amazingly smart Jesus is. Because I don't know what you would have said, but I'd have been stuck at that point, knowing that this was a trap, but not knowing how exactly to get out of it. Well, watch and be amazed as Jesus handles this delicate and difficult situation. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. So what's going on in this, in this story? Is this story just a simple question of whether you should pay tax to the government or not? Is Jesus simply helping people figure out how to fill out their revenue agency forms? That's how the story has often been understood. It's been read as sort of Jesus teaching a separation of church and state, but I don't think that's what's going on here. The tax that they're asking about is a very specific tax, an imperial tax. And it was implemented in 6 AD, so just a few years before this, following the census that was taken. This was a special tax that applied to conquered peoples. And all non-Romans were required to pay this tax. And it reminded them, not only was it a great fundraiser for the Roman government, but it reminded them of their status as a conquered people, as a subject nation. And to pay that tax, they were only allowed to use one form of money, this Roman denarius which was worth about a day's wage uh, for a laborer. So that's bad enough that the tax represents the fact that we've been conquered by this tyrant, idolatrous nation. That, that's hard enough. But it gets way worse than that. Let's take a look at the coin itself. It'll be on the screen. This is the coin that Jesus uh, is referring to, or they're referring to. When Jesus asked, whose image is this, and, and, and whose inscription This is the coin he's referring to. On one side of the coin, we see an image of Tiberius Caesar Augustus. And the inscription around it says, Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Now, if you're the son of God, that's a pretty high status. Well, we'll we'll come back to that. But it's claiming sort of semi-divine status for him. at least. On the flip side, we see an image of Tiberius sitting as what is called the Pontifex Maximus, or the high priest of Rome, taking precedence as the highest religious figure in the empire. Do you see a problem emerging here? Because they sure did. What's the problem? First, the image in and of itself. Remember the first and second commandments of the ten? You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, no. And... You shall make no graven image. No image. Especially images for worship, but images in particular. So if you had set out to deliberately offend Jews, you could have done no better than minting this coin 
with these inscriptions and then requiring them to use it as an expression of their submission to pagan authority. Think Muslim cartoons. This is that offensive, okay? This freaks them out. This immediately gets response. This is so much more than paying a simple tax, as difficult as that might have been. This is not just an economic issue. This is not just about currency. This is idolatry. And then there's the inscription itself. These words, coupled with the image, were a blasphemous, idolatrous declaration that Caesar is the Lord, the God, and the High Priest. That Tiberius was worthy of worship. And we know the emperor cult was getting stronger and stronger in that day, especially in other parts, not specifically in Israel. But Tiberius was worthy of worship, is what this says. And that he's the one through whom we access God. Well, for the faithful Jew to pay this tax, to even handle this money, was to consent to the blasphemous claims of Tiberius Caesar. Do you see the problem? Now, from the very inception of this tax, from the moment it was brought in, they were said, here's this tax, you've got to pay it using this money, Jews rebelled. A man named Judas from Galilee, not to be confused with the betrayer, this is uh, around when Jesus was born, he led a revolt, uh, seeing this tax and this money as an affront to the loyalty to God that Israel was to have, and, and that it was a sign of Israel's slavery to Rome. So he had a revolt. Now, he didn't last long. He was killed. But the sentiment continued, and it simmered, and it, it was there, and it was boiling, and it was, it, was, it was growing until the people of God, the people of Israel, um, finally revolted in uh, AD 66 to AD 70, which led, we've already hinted at this, led to the destruction of the temple. But this is some of what's going on beneath the surface. It's not the only reason, of course, there was uh, the revolt and, and destruction in 8070. But it was part of that. And so the people responded to it. So now we can see how tricky this trap really is. How much is hanging on Jesus' response. You know, would he uphold Rome's blasphemous idolatry? Would he do it? Or would he call for revolution? That's the question. This is tense stuff. Guys get killed for this kind of thing. Oh yeah, he will. Um, but... How is he going to respond? Would he side with God against Rome? Or would he, would he go against God and, and side with the enemies of the, of the people? Now, what will he say? And I have to ask, what would you have said at that point? Other than, uh, uh, <laughs> um, I'm not sure. Well, that's what Jesus said. He said the famous words, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. But what does this mean exactly? And here's, here's where the brilliance of Jesus shines through. Let's, let's take it phrase by phrase. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. So he says, whose image is this? Whose inscription? It's Caesar. It's a filthy, idolatrous, blasphemous image giving every faithful Jew the shivers. Do you realize Jesus himself didn't even have a piece of this on him? When he said, does anyone have, a, have one? I love it. It's probably one of the guys who, who confronted him. That, oh yeah, I have one in my pocket right here. <laughs> right? Jesus doesn't have one on him. There's no way he's going to pack around that kind of image. Absolutely not. It's fundamentally against who God is. 
So Jesus, in effect, says, pay the tax? Absolutely. What else would you do with filthy money than give it back to the blasphemer who made it? What else would you do with it? Yeah, give it back. So in one way, he supports the tax. He can't be accused of sedition. He's saying, yeah, give it back. Get rid of it. Why would you even hold on to that kind of thing? But at the same time, he denounces its blasphemy. And so he can't be accused of religious compromise. But as always, Jesus has to go further, right? (laughs) We've seen this already, especially in the last few interactions. They ask for something, he gives it to them, and then he really gives it to them. Because then Jesus does something amazing. Whose image is on this coin? It's Caesar's. Give it back to him. But then he says, give back to God what is God's. And here we go back to his original question. When Jesus said, whose image is this? He used the same word that's used in Genesis 127 when God said, let us make humans in our image. In our likeness. And they proceeded to make humans, male and female, in the image of God. Humans, minted, stamped, imbued with the very image and likeness of God, their creator. Do you realize how radical this is? I don't think it dawns on us that this prohibition, prohibition on the images of God in the Ten Commandments was absolute. Why? Because God was petty? No, because God doesn't like religious art? Well, some of it he probably doesn't like. But, but no, that wasn't what's going on. It's because God had already made images of himself. Look around you. No, I mean it. Look around you. Those are the images he made. He already made images of himself. And the only images of God that God allows in creation are human beings. Men and women, boys and girls, humans created in the image of God. And whenever something else, this is the story of of the Old Testament, this is the story of the world, whenever something else, sticks or stones or gold or some kind of ideology, takes the place of the image of God, where people say, that's God, that's his image. Whenever that's happened, humans cease to be the image of God. As we said before, if I begin to worship this water bottle, as the image of God, you're no longer the image of God, and frankly, I can do with you whatever I want, especially in service to my image of God. And so, the moment uh, humans are no longer images of God and something else is, then God is not worshipped, because that's idolatry, and God is rejected, but humans immediately are abused and oppressed. And that's the story. The prophets continually coming to the people of Israel and saying, worship God and treat each other properly. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you don't love God and you don't worship the true God, you'll end up abusing the people around you. So when Jesus says, give back to God what is God's, he turns our attention to the God who created us in his image and our response to him as his images in creation. In their efforts to trap Jesus, the religious and political cronies were not interested in actually doing what was right. We know that. That that came out really clear. They're interested in this this desire to give Jesus what he deserves, right? Vengeance, to really give it to him. They're not really interested in giving to God what is due him. But Jesus, he cuts through their trap. 
And he calls them once again to be the people that God has created them to be. To give themselves back to God in true, wholehearted worship. And, this is connected to the whole story, to help others do the same. To help others come to understand that they have been created in the image of God. That they have been stamped and minted by the creator of the universe who loves them passionately and longs for them to experience all that they were created to experience in relationship with Him. And so when he says, give back to God what is God's, he's saying, give your whole self back to God and help others give themselves back to God, which takes us right back to the fruit question. Right back to the challenge that Jesus already gave, that His people would be making space for people far away from God to connect to God, to come to understand that they've been created in His image, that they have been created for a purpose, that they've been created for life. To help them understand that and be able to offer themselves back. And to reveal who God is in their everyday lives in the way they live and love one another. So Jesus looks at us today and He says, the question Whose image are you? Whose image are you? That's the question he's asking us today. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? When you look around, what do you see? Do you see the image of God minted and stamped by the creator of heaven and earth? Or are you so focused on your, 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 your supposed flaws are you so caught up in what, what uh, advertising tells you what you should look like? Are you, are you so caught up with what your family has told you over the years that has diminished the true person you are? Are you so caught up with other images and other visions of who you think you are that you've forgotten that you were created in the image of God? And that He's calling you to give yourself back to Him and experience all the life He has for you? Well, we're getting toward the end. I know we have communion. I know we have potluck. Oh, my goodness. But let me just say this, because we've got to touch on this. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? I mean, what does that mean for us? I think three things. Uh, we could go all day on this, but here it is, rapid fire. So, to be created in the image of God, and this is a big debate through history. People went on and on about this. Um, but I think I'm right, and here's, here's why I tell you this. <laughs> because I stand on the shoulders of many, many other much, much better preachers and theologians than I. And I think this is what the scripture says. First, we were created for relationship. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. We were created by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are an eternal community of love who have always existed. That's the triune God of worship, the triune God of life that we are made in the image of. God is a relationship, and we are created for relationship. When, when God stamped His image on us, when He created you and I to look like Him, he, we look like Him most in our relationships with one another. In our relationship with God. In our relationship to the world He created. And even in our relationship within ourselves, where we often experience so much brokenness. We were inherently relational. Created to worship. Created to love and serve. Created... Uh, to, to actually make a difference as we, as we care for the world. Created to live with integrity. So we're created for a relationship. And then second, and it all kind of flows from that, but to be created in the image of God means that we were created for a purpose. That God didn't just make little people because he was bored and decided he'd like some people around. I don't know. He didn't do that. He created us because he had a purpose for us. 
a desire for us to be part of his life and, and part of what he was doing in making this world and making it more than, he, than, than we could ever have imagined. And, and he put all this potentiality into our lives and into his creation. And he, he created us to be part of making history, part of, 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 of caring for creation and seeing it all become all part of this. And you and I and the relationships we're creating, even in, in this place, he created us for a purpose. It's the result, you could say, or the goal of the relationships that he created us for. And then the third one is that being created in the image of God means that we are created to live. We were created for life. Now, because of sin and because of brokenness and because of evil, there's been a lot of problem with that, right? But what's the story that we celebrate week after week? What's the story we celebrate today at the table? What's the story we celebrate next week when we look at the God who is alive? We celebrate the fact that God looked at us and said, my images are now heading toward death, but I will rescue them. And I want them to be all that I've created them to be. So he came and he became one of us, right? He became human. And he took our place so that we could be restored as images of God because we were never created for death. We were created to live. We were created for life. That's why Christians say we believe in life from from conception to the last breath and beyond. We believe in life because we've been created in the image of God. Those are just three relationships, purpose, and life that speak of our being created in the image of God. So, we're going to come to communion today. But here's the deal. Jesus looks at you and says, do you know whose image you were created in? Do you know how I made you? I fashioned you. Do you have any idea, when Jesus looks at you, how much pride he has when he looks at you, his creation? Any idea how much he brags about you? With every angel that walks by, they're sick of hearing about you. They are. Especially the ones that work, work locally. God is amazingly in love with you and his creation and has done everything possible so that we can be all that he's created us to be. And so in this passage and in this story in here today, the invitation for us is to say, okay, I want to give myself back. I want to say, Jesus, I give myself to you. You've given yourself to me. You've made it possible for me to even return. I give myself to you. I give myself to you in worship. I give myself to you in in all areas of my life, areas of my life where I've struggled to, to give it up. I realize now that you've created me in your image and the call is to simply give back to you all that I am. And as we come to communion, we're then challenged, I think, as a church, where Jesus says, you know what? I'm all about images of God. I'm all about the people. And as a church, as you give yourself to God, would you also commit to giving yourself back to God by again saying, as a church, we will make space for people who are far away from God to connect to God so that they can begin to understand how they were created in the image of God, how they were created for a relationship, how they were created for a purpose, how they were created for life. Will we do that as a church? Will we say, Jesus, I'm coming to you today to give myself back to you so that your spirit can infuse my life, 
So that when I walk out of here today, when I'm at work tomorrow morning, when I'm at home Tuesday afternoon, when I'm out with friends on Thursday night, that my very life is a demonstration of God's goodness flowing through me so that people begin to see, begin to experience God's goodness, God's call to be part of His life, part of His relationships. Could you come to communion today? Give yourself back to God because here at the table, He's given all of Himself to you. Let's pray. Jesus, it's amazing to realize that you look at us and you see amazing, beautiful, stunning works of art. You love us passionately. And the people around us and the people in our lives, the people that are they're far, far away, you created them in your image. And, and your desire is that we as a people would give ourselves back to you and experience in us and then through us to the world all that you have for us. And so today as we come to your table, we come to receive from you, but we come to give back to you. If there's areas in our lives where we've forgotten or we've compromised or we've rejected your desire for our lives, I pray, Lord Jesus, that by your Spirit as we come today, we'd be willing to admit that, to repent, to ask forgiveness, to turn away, and to come again and say, Jesus, all that I am, I give to you. I give back to you the one who made me, the one who redeemed me, and the one who walks with me now. In your name we pray. Amen.